Chapter 27 of The Art of Stage Dancing. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Stage Dancing by Ned Wayburn. Chapter 27 Professional Coaching and Producing for Amateur Entertainments. I am often called upon to put on an amateur show, and the call is not confined to New York alone, but extends to many far-distant cities. These are usually community or social affairs, charity organizations, college shows, or entertainments by the employees of some large establishment. Once I have put a show across for these lovers of theatrical activities, the habit of continuing the plan of giving a show seems to have become established for with many cities and clubs and associations, the call continues year after year, an annual or periodical production under my direction being demanded. This indicates that I have been successful in directing the non-professional in a theatrical way, and I am sure it is so, for I have handled the whole situation and the company just as I would if they were going on to the professional stage, taken personal charge of everything, coached principals and subordinates, put the show across, and been on hand to see the results. Spread here before you is the story of just how I organize, coach, develop, and handle an amateur company in a musical comedy or review performance to occupy a full evening's time on a theater stage. From the first call of an untrained troupe of inexperienced actors to the final curtain of the actual completed performance. First of all, I make a call for anyone and everyone who would like to take part in the entertainment. This call is usually made in a hall, sometimes in the ballroom of a hotel, but usually in a large hall where there is a good floor and a piano. I always have a pianist in attendance. I take the people who are going to take part in the ensemble first and arrange them according to their height, always having the shortest person to my left. Sometimes a great many people will try out for a thing of this kind. I have had as many as three and four hundred at many of the calls, and possibly more than that. I have always arranged them, as I say, from my left according to their height. Then I get them to stand in a huge semicircle before me, as large a semicircle as the hall will permit, and if I have too many for that one semicircle, I put the others behind them into other semicircles. I begin by placing my first semicircle shoulder to shoulder. I watch their shoulder heights and their head lines all the way along the semicircle. The semicircle will begin at my left, cover the whole side of the hall, whichever is the longest side, and the end of the semicircle will be at my extreme right. I have my table and chair in the center, but near the wall opposite this semicircle. The pianist I usually have on my left-hand side, if it is convenient. He must have his piano turned in such a position that by looking slightly over his shoulder he can see me as well as the group. I number the entire group, beginning with number one and running consecutively from my left as far as they will go. Then they are required to sit down in the same order. Each person must have a seat, and they occupy the same seat at each call after the elimination process. Before I do anything else, I have their names taken, with addresses and telephone numbers, 
the first and last names directly opposite the number I have given them. Then they stand up, and I arrange them in straight lines across. Sometimes I will have eight in a line across, and I may have six lines of eight to begin with, sometimes eight lines of ten, and perhaps as many as twelve in a line, all depending on the shape and size of the hall. After they have been arranged in perfectly straight lines, one directly behind the other, the next thing I do is to teach them the eight different directions, which are so important. Let me recall them to you. 1. Left oblique. 2. Left. 3. Left oblique back. 4. Back. 5. Right oblique back. 6. Right. 7. Right oblique. And 8. Front. They are taken through these directions until I am sure they understand them thoroughly. Then I divide the foot into four different parts, just as I do in my courses. The toe, the end of the shoe, the ball, the half sole, the heel, and the flat. I always make them stand with their knees together, their heels together, the left toe pointed to left oblique, the right toe pointed to right oblique, hands down at their sides, the weight equally distributed between the two feet, heads up, and looking straight front on a line with their eyes. I insist upon their standing this way. Every time they come to their places on the floor during rehearsal, I remind them of it. Now, I begin to show them simple movements in order to get them to shift their weight easily and to give them confidence. First, the hopping step. When they do this, I can immediately tell just how far they can go in my dancing, by giving them what I call the hopping test. They hop on the ball of the left foot eight times, and they repeat that eight more times on the ball of the right foot to a 4-4 four, four tempo. Then they hop on the ball of the left foot for eight counts, and alternately for eight on the right foot, through a number of refrains or popular choruses. I caution them to be careful about bending the knee when they land the weight of the body on the floor, because many of them have never danced before in their lives. They know nothing about it, but by bending their knee they make a cushion for their weight, and they must land on the ball of the foot, not on the heels. After I try them out doing that, I put them in a circular formation, where everybody can see me, for I stand in the middle of the ring. I turn them toward the left hand, and I start them around in a circle on the hopping steps. Left hop, right hop, left, two, three, four, right hop, left hop, right, two, three, four, alternately through, in time with the music of a popular 4-4 four, four tune. This test has never failed with me. I can immediately find the clumsy awkward ones and select the apt ones. This, of course, I do in my mind, making mental notes of their numbers. After I get them back in a straight line at the end of the hall, I call out the numbers of those who have qualified, but I do not hurry to do this, because many times they are nervous at a first tryout. So I encourage them as much as I dare to. One has to be tactful at such times. But right away you can find your awkward people, and also those who have a natural grace. I can pick them out immediately. They move around in a circle. 
Many times I will stop them and divide them into smaller groups, all the time noting the ones that get it and the ones that don't. I will get to know number one. I will watch her or him, and I will say to myself, one, three, five, eight, nine, fourteen, sixteen, and eighteen have it. The rest haven't. Then I ask them to sit down. I can find out just about the way they are going to do my work from this little tryout. I never individualize my criticism. The main idea is to find out the ones who are interested. There are always some people who come to these calls who are out for a lark, and they must be eliminated at the first call. After the hopping test, I am able to pretty well decide just which ones are going to get the ensemble work, and very often you will find some splendid natural dancer in a group like this. Then I have another little test that I use in a 2-4 movement. Two hops on the left, two hops on the right, two on the left, and two on the right. Get them to do that to a 2-4 tempo. After I determine in my own mind those who are most apt, I ask the members present if they have ever done anything in the way of any individual stunt, either a dance or a song, or if they ever played a part in amateur theatricals. Usually a few will stand up, and I bring them around my table one at a time to get an idea of what they have done. I get them to write down their names and addresses, and exactly what they have done, or what they think they can do, gradually getting the whole thing on paper. In this way, I am getting all of the available talent organized. In the meantime, I am watching the members of the ensemble. I am trying them out in some of the simple routines. I gradually work them into it before they realize it. I get them all enthused about it, and through long experience, I am able to tell which group is going to be what I call my dancing girls or boys. They will be the smallest ones, five foot one, five foot two, three and four. Then I pick out those who are a little slow in picking up the steps, and they will be the mediums, the sort of in-between ones. Then I pick out the very best type of showgirl, usually the taller girls, who can't move as fast as the smaller girls, but who have grace and good figures, and who are good-looking. Until I have the three final groups, of course, I make all the members of the ensemble dance. The showgirl will be more dignified, perhaps, with a stately bearing. Naturally, I pick out the girls who have natural aptitude to do my work properly, and make them the real dancers. I have eight, twelve, or sixteen of these in a set, never any more. Then the others who don't dance quite so well will be the mediums, and then the showgirls who can stand in the back of the stage or at the corners and dress the stage or do parade numbers or walking numbers. After I get these sets worked out, I give them their next call and take the principles in hand. Then I have copies of the manuscript and usually carry along three sets of the parts. If it is a play, I have the play completely read. If it is a review, I have all of the skits and numbers with me. I have the principals come in and sit down in a semicircle before me while I seat myself behind the table on which I keep my papers and the briefcase in which I carry the scripts, parts, etc. And we have a meeting similar to the meeting that was held with the ensemble. The pianist is there, and they bring along their songs. 
Whoever is going to be the stage manager of the company is also there. He is usually one of my coaches that I carry with me. The local casting director, and usually the president or chairman, also sit at the table at the left side of me, with my own assistant, the coach, at my right. Now, those who want to read parts for me are put at one side into one group. That is, those who wish to try to handle important parts in the dialogue. Then I place another group together which expects to do solo dancing, at the other side. They are called principal dancers. Then I make a separate group of those who expect to sing, or to do any sort of a musical specialty, or any kind of a stunt that might be included in the show. I have had the greatest variety of specialties in a show. I have had them do magic, burlesque magic, play ukuleles, and all sorts of stunts which I have placed effectively in a show. We had a man in the Princeton show who did a little trick with a cigarette that was a scream. I saw him standing around, and I asked him if he could do a specialty. I don't think so, he said. He was smoking a cigarette at the time, and he said, This is the only thing I can do. He took the cigarette from his mouth, broke it in two, lit both ends of it, and he was smoking with both ends of the cigarette sticking out of his mouth. Then he put another cigarette in his mouth and did the same, and finally he lit the third cigarette without using his fingers, but from the other butts in his mouth. Well, I had him do this stunt in the second act, in a proper spot, and it stopped the show every performance. Some of those connected with the show told me before the show that they didn't think what he was doing was going to get over, but I told them in as nice a way as I could to mind their own business, as I always do. And I put this bid in. I put a 50-ampere spotlight, very strong, on his face, and he just did this little trick beautifully. Well, there was more talk about that than anything else in the whole show. It had commercial value, and it helped the box office. People went especially to see him do it. We had stunts there that had been planned for a year, and they didn't get as much favorable comment as this one little trick did. Of course, it was properly fitted in, cued in, as we call it, just as everything else has to be in the right spot. I only point this out to you to tell you that sometimes in arranging your recitals or shows, whatever you may call them, you will find a lot of talent which you would otherwise overlook unless you go about it in the thorough way that I do. I do the same with a professional organization, because after all, I am a builder of entertainments, and I must know entertainment values in order to make a success of my business. I must be able to recognize and fully realize talent when it is present. You must have a lot of patience to do this work. Some people are able to do lots of things that will prove entertaining. After all, what you are concocting is an entertainment. You should always aim to present something different, something original or novel that will surprise and amuse your audience, not the hackneyed old stunts that everyone has seen time and again. After I get them divided into groups and get their names down, I go through the tests for principles. I will always hear the songs first, but before you hear them sing, they have to put down on paper what they have ever done before, how much training they have had, and so on. Then they go over to the piano and sing. 
but I usually try to be tactful and let amateur singers try out with me with no one listening, to spare them embarrassment. From the piano, they come up to the table and sit down before me. As they are sitting before me, I note their appearance. I engage them in conversation. I note their teeth, mannerisms, and personalities, incidentally classifying them in my mind and casting them in my mind's eye. If they are in any way possible, and I feel that they should be given a chance, I make a note of it and the songs I want them to try. Then I grade them, number one, number two, three, four, and so on. All of those who are trying for the leading parts are graded as they should be, but always on paper so that I will not forget or overlook anyone. After I am through with them, I go through the solo dancers the same way and mark them and what they can do. I get them down on paper. As I see them dance, I find out which is the best dancer, with the idea of placing her or him in the show to good advantage. That's the important thing in planning your show. They all have to be placed in a certain sequence in the show. If the best numbers are all in the first act, you kill the act or acts that follow. The success of any show is in the way it is laid out. It is the placement of the personalities, and what they are given to do, when they do it, that makes or mars the entertainment. One with a great deal of personality can go into your show, and if not cast properly, he or she will kill the rest of the show. Casting must be done with good judgment and common sense. After I have my list of singers and dancers worked out, then I pick the people who are capable of playing the parts. Some of them may have had previous experience, but never perhaps professional coaching. Now the reason why these amateur shows are usually so rotten is on account of the incompetent coaches who put them on. It is always the fault of the stager if the show doesn't go over. Some of them are terrible. They don't know anything about the show business. They don't know how to lay out a show. They don't know how to put on the dancing. They don't know a comedy scene when they see one. They do not understand how to rehearse dialogue or how to set the inflections of the voices which make the lines get over as they should. These coaches are usually people without any actual staging experience. Consequently, they are not competent to rehearse anybody. Amateur organizations all over the country are beginning to realize the necessity for professional stage direction in order to register success, both artistically and financially. It is not nearly so costly to employ my organization as it is to have some other which is only giving a very poor imitation of us, which means a thoroughly competent staff of real producing directors who are up to the minute with their dance routines and everything else required. If you will take the trouble to investigate, you will no doubt discover that the coach you have employed has been to my school for a very short time, just in order to get our latest dances and ideas in staging. Why get this service at second hand? It will cost no more to get it from me direct. Before you let them read a part for you, you should first hand them a copy of their part and tell them to go to one side and sit down and read it through thoroughly. Some of them don't know anything about a part. A copy of a part is typewritten, and the dialogue that they are to speak begins at the margin. The cue that they speak on begins about an inch away, and there is a dotted line in front of the cue, 
but always what they are to say starts at the margin when parts are properly typewritten. Parts are made up of what we call speeches. It may be four lines, or four words, or two words, or even one word. Yes is a speech. What they should know is what their speeches are. What they have to say is called a speech, and in parentheses must always be the stage business or what they are to do. Stage directions should always be in parentheses. They are sometimes typed in red ink on the first copies of the parts. When they study the dialogue, they should try to fathom the speech. That is, they should form a mind's eye picture of what the line conveys to the audience. That is how I teach them to study. They read a sentence. A sentence is supposed to express a complete thought. They must get the proper inflection by reading it out loud. No method of expression is brought into play yet. By that, I mean no pantomimic by-play or facial expression. They are only reading at first. In most of the amateur shows, the players never do anything else but read the parts. They read, crossing back and forth whenever the coach thinks they ought to cross, and it doesn't mean a thing. I watched that very thing in an amateur show not so long ago, and it was inane. Nobody should move from one place on the stage to another without a reason for moving. There is a reason for every inflection of the voice. A person with common sense will read a part intelligently, but only a person with a dramatic spark inside of the body will be able to act a part naturally. If the dramatic spark is not there, no human being will put it there. If it is there, a real director will discover it and awaken it and make much of it. After this first reading rehearsal, where the parts should be cast, more than one person can be tried out for the different parts. I make a call for the dialogue rehearsal where I walk them through the action, holding the parts in their hands as they walk through the physical action of the play. You will find that each one has his or her own idea as to how it should be done. I have them speak their lines distinctly and slowly at first. While this is going on, I do not allow any visitors. Not one word is spoken except by the person who is reading their lines, or myself. I make notes as to who reads the parts best. Many times you will find that the local folks will have ideas about who is to play this part or that part. I pay no attention to them at all. I always use my own judgment about such things. In fact, about everything concerning the production. I don't allow anybody else to dominate the show or arrange anything for me. But you must know your business before you can assume such an attitude. After the dialogue rehearsal is over, all the participants are carefully marked, noting the ones who are most natural and apt at the dialogue, those who have resonant voices that will dominate the auditorium, as well as those who have positive personalities. You know there are a great many negative people on the stage. They never get anything over. I always have tried to pick personalities that will go over. I can take a crowd of professionals or amateurs and place them before me in a semicircle, seated, get them to read a play for me, and immediately pick those who will score a success. This, of course, is the result of years of experience, 
Yet if you try this, you will have some with strong personalities dominating your little semicircles. They will usually dominate your show. There is always one personality that dominates everybody. It might be a comedian, it might be a singer, it might be a dancer, but there is always some personality that sticks out, and after all, such a personality must be reckoned with and properly cast, otherwise it may even dominate the play. It usually does. If properly cast, it may carry the play to success. A rehearsal usually lasts about three hours. Accomplish something every minute of the time. Get on with the business of rehearsal. No discussions or arguments. When rehearsal is over, make your next call for these people at a definite time and do not change it. After dividing all of your people into groups, as I have said, make separate calls for principals and the ensemble. For instance, take your dialogue and principals songs Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evenings from 7.30 until 10.30 or thereabouts, and the chorus or ensemble sets Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at about the same time. I think you will find that you can accomplish a great deal on Sundays. I usually call the principals and members of the chorus the first Sunday at 2 o'clock and keep them until 6, unless there are religious scruples against rehearsing on Sunday, which is really not considered sacrilegious. I was brought up in the Episcopal Church and sang in the choir as a boy. Then I run right through the play as fast as I can to teach them the sequence of it. Then I usually call the principal singers back Sunday evening and give them a good rehearsal on the business of the numbers. At the first rehearsal for the chorus, I have the musical coach teach them the music and lyrics by ear, one phrase at a time. Provide a complete copy of the lyrics for every member of the chorus. We usually collect them at the end of each rehearsal. Do not allow any talking, laughing, or playing at any of your rehearsals. Make everybody concerned take everything seriously from the very beginning. They will welcome it, since it saves time for everybody. Put them under the strictest discipline. Get rid of those who do not want to take you seriously. Do not be annoyed by them, as they jeopardize your chances of success. Sometimes I carry my own musical coach, and I have found out that when I don't carry my own pianist, I always have trouble with my work. I have never found anybody who can play the piano for my rehearsals to suit me unless they have played professional rehearsals before. They must have a certain touch to inspire me, so a good pianist means a lot. Insist upon one who reads easily and who can play by ear as well. If you have a rotten piano player, the numbers will usually turn out to be terrible. There must be something in the way the number is played to make the members of the chorus want to dance. After we get the numbers taught, that is, the songs, then I start to teach the ensembles to dance the different routines. I pick out what I would say would be the hit number of the show, the best popular tune, something that appeals to me, that has a production idea in the lyric. It is usually in 4-4 tempo, what I call the song hit tempo. I pick out this one song, and we try a simple soft shoe movement to the chorus of it. Our routines fit any 32-bar chorus. I work with the song for a while, then give them a five-minute rest. Then I may pick out a waltz number and try a few steps to that 3-4 tempo. 
but first of all they are in a ring in a circle around me, and they first are required to walk in time to each tune in the show. I show them how to walk in time to the music. You begin with your left foot and walk eight steps in strict time with the music, then you take four steps in half time, counting one and on each side. Taking a step on the flat of your left foot for the count of one, then bringing the ball of the right foot up behind the left heel and touching the floor with the ball of that foot for the count of and. The same with the right foot, and so on. The complete movement being in strict time, and four and for half time. There may be eight, twelve, sixteen, or sometimes twenty-four numbers, and the people are made to walk around in circular formation in time with the music, until they walk gracefully without any awkward mannerisms. Now, there will always be somebody who will start with the wrong foot. Someone will always be out of time. Some of them are born without a sense of rhythm. They don't belong in the show, and they must be eliminated if you are going to make a success of the ensemble work. Only people who do modern dancing well should attempt the dancing. We go along and teach our regular routines whatever I lay out for the show, but working on every number at the same time, doing maybe four steps for one number, four for another, and so on, until I have laid out the whole show in my mind. I never lay a show out in advance. I do my best work on the spur of the moment. I have tried the other way, but whatever is cut and dried is never any good. I must be inspired at rehearsals. When those who are going to be the principals have learned the songs, I talk to them and try them out on a few little test steps to see what they can do. Some of them are usually able to do some little dance movements. Then I make them stand behind the ensemble and do the work I have taught them, not in front of the chorus where they would be embarrassed if they missed a step, but behind the lines where they can be picking up the work. Then I eventually get them out in front and they usually do about the same dance as the ensemble, because if they don't, the ensemble shows them up. And you don't get your precision effect. You must always get in an effective finish to every number, either a final picture or an exit. If you want the chorus to get a hand, bring them on for the encore, and let the chorus exit big on the encore, but first get your effective finish. Then you have them all back for the encore, then exit the chorus if you like, and let the soloist stay on and let her or him do a solo dance if it is going to be strong enough. There are different ways to finish a number, and you have to use your own judgment. Be patient when you handle the principles and chorus, but persistent. Shape up the dialogue right away, and take the entire show through as soon as you can, the first Sunday, as I suggested, if possible. Make them run through the show no matter how it looks. They must stand up for the ensembles and go through what they have learned, no matter how rough it is, and the principals must do whatever they are supposed to do to the best of their abilities. Don't take no or I'm not prepared or anything like that for an answer. Accept no excuses. Go through with it. The more you go through the sequence, the better they will be at the performance. Along about that time, I am thinking about the pictorial effects. I will have worked out a costume plot for the principals and chorus by this time. By a costume plot, I mean an assignment of dresses, costumes, for both the chorus and principals. 
I make out two separate plots, one for the members of the chorus and one for the principals, in sequence from the opening number of the show down to the end of the show. If I have 36 or 48 members in the chorus, I put their names in and the costumes that they wear for each number in the order that they are worn. These plots are then typewritten according to the sequence of the show. This is most important. They show every change in costume that every one of the ensemble makes during the performance. The same thing with the principals. Always figure the time you have allowed each person to change costume, otherwise you will strike a snag which may ruin the performance. The show is taking a definite form by this time. I then start to give them formations or groupings on the scene. When the curtain goes up, sometimes they are discovered on the scene. Some scenes I arrange for the purpose of obtaining a good, effective picture, according to the architecture and atmosphere of the scene, or I may give them some very effective entrance movement, coming down a staircase, through an arch or gateway, or over a fence. This is influenced by the set. I sometimes arrange surprise entrances, or little surprise exits which are inspired by the lyrics or music. Sometimes I may use a personality in the ensemble, and give her an entrance or exit last. I resort to any sort of producer's magic, as I call it, to get an effect, or to provoke applause, always keeping the costumes and the color schemes in mind. Of course, I have my own bag of tricks with which I can ensure the success of any musical play that has any sort of entertainment appeal, and you, no doubt, will have yours in time, with experience. During the dialogue rehearsals, I make the principals speak the dialogue in time, the same as the dances are done in time. They are not allowed to use their own conception of how the lines should be spoken, unless I think their conception is better than mine. Every syllable they utter will have to dominate the entire auditorium. That is something that the coach must understand. When the house is full, the audience makes a difference in the acoustics. Your people in the show don't know anything about that, and so you must govern the volume of the dialogue and set every inflection, attitude of the body, and gesture definitely. But never let them use gestures that are obvious. We will next assume that up to this time we have been working in a hall. Now, to perfect the dialogue, it is sometimes necessary to go over one speech fifty times or a hundred times to get a certain inflection and to set the accompanying stage business. Stage business, all of it, creates some dramatic value for the performance. That has to be worked out if you want to get the effective pieces of business, much depending upon the brain power and the experience of the coach, whether he is able to devise effective business or not. Sometimes you will find it indicated in the script. For a man to make a success at this business, he must have inventive ability. He must thoroughly understand dialogue, how to time it and set it. They must pick up their cues, and at the proper moment, and not make stage weights between lines. Sometimes the line is one that calls for a laugh. Sometimes there is a line preceding it, preparing the audience for what is to follow. We call that a feed line. Where the period comes, there should be a slight pause. We time that. The actor counts to himself, one, two, before proceeding with the next line. That gives a laugh a chance to get underway. 
If you don't give a line like that a chance, it doesn't get over, and the point is lost. It doesn't get the laugh that you expect, and it would if the coaching is done properly. Rehearsing dialogue is very tricky work. You must be very strict when you rehearse it. If anybody on the stage should move, if a chair is moved or a door is opened at the wrong time while the dialogue is going on, it would detract from the line and kill the play. No one can move while the line is spoken unless it is some kind of a line that doesn't call for a point. But if it is a comedy point that you want to put over, or any other kind of an effective point, the characters must be still and the line must be delivered, and after the period, after the end of the line, you can break the picture and move. Many a play is killed because people don't understand how to rehearse dialogue, don't understand how to get scenes over, amateur coaches teaching wrong business. I saw wrong business ruin a whole show once in Baltimore. The chorus was walking up and down stage trying to get a lyric over, with no sense of direction. They didn't know where they were going or why. The coach just told them to walk up and down. The soloist's back was toward the audience at times. She was facing right, she was facing left, in every conceivable direction except the right one to get a song over. Of course the number failed. The soloist should have been in the center of the stage, so the lyric could have been heard and followed by everyone in the audience. Get the verse and the first chorus over so that the audience gets the idea of the song. It creates atmosphere for the number. If you walk sideways and your face is sideways, the audience doesn't get the lyric. When I rehearse a show, the faces are at least three-quarters to the audience, when a person sings or speaks. Nobody must ever have their back to the audience when a line is spoken. If they sing a song or speak a line, everything must be done for the benefit of the audience. That must be kept in mind from the time you first begin to rehearse the company. Whether it is a professional or an amateur company makes no difference. They are trained in the same way. Now, let us say we have finally perfected the play. They know the lyrics, they know the numbers, they know the business that occurs during the dialogue, and they know the business of the ensembles. By this time, the play has actually taken form, and it is time to rehearse it with the scenery. When the scenery is added, both the ensemble and the principals who do the numbers all report in their practice clothes. Insist upon that. This ensures they're getting right down to business without stalling, as nearly all people on the professional or amateur stage are disposed to do. Go through the sets, get effective groupings so that you get the most natural and effective pictures, and it all conforms to the architecture of the sets. After you have finished rehearsing with the scenery, commence to give them the hand props. Sometimes I use important hand props in dialogue before I take on the scenery. That has to be carefully worked out and considered. Otherwise, I work the scene rehearsals in with hand props. You will find that most everyone who has to handle a prop will fumble it, will be terribly awkward with it. If they have to pick a chair up and set it someplace else, they will drag it across the floor and make a noise with it. They can't pick it up and set it down without any noise. This must be rehearsed. If they have to handle some hand prop, they will drop it at the wrong time. Most people are very clumsy in the presence of an audience. Rehearse them with hats. 
gentlemen have very often come on the stage in amateur performances and worn their hats in drawing-rooms in the presence of ladies i have seen them take them off and place them in the most ridiculous places even in professional shows figure all of this out and rehearse it carefully i have had awful times just trying to teach them how to sit down and stand up properly after the scenery and props come the costumes we never have any trouble unless somebody is trying to rehearse everything at the same time not even in an amateur show do i do that i won't allow it the sequence of final rehearsals is in this order the scenery the props the costumes the lights the orchestra you often have trouble with your costumes unless you get them from a good concern there are two or three first-class establishments in new york where you can rent most anything i have given the names of some in a preceding chapter there is one big firm in new york that has recently bought over a million dollars worth of costumes from the charles froman estate including some wonderful period costumes i always seem to be able to get about what i have wanted for amateur productions from certain big new york establishments in this line of business those who make costumes for the famous players griffith and the very best moving picture and theatrical companies they have made many things for marion davies and her cosmopolitan pictures i had a telegram from a girl in minneapolis the other day she had to have a certain costume because her engagement depended upon it she was to work three weeks at a hundred and fifty dollars a week and she couldn't do it without the proper costumes i had one of my men pick out the costumes for her they cost her forty five dollars for the entire three weeks they were sent to her by parcel post cod by one of these firms we have an art department in our studios where we make our own designs for settings and costumes when amateurs or professionals write to me or wire me i am usually able to put them in touch with the right people and help to get just what they need any of these can be gotten at reasonable prices the prices range from five dollars six dollars seven dollars and fifty cents ten dollars twelve dollars and fifteen dollars a week for each costume depending of course upon the quality of costume i used a marvelous costume once worn by ethel barrymore in one production and i think i paid fifteen dollars for the rent of it a costume like that would cost fifteen hundred dollars to have it made after i am through with the costumes i begin to do the lighting I will use certain lights that will affect the sets, the scenery. Other lights will be used for the characters. I use the side lights, overhead lights, border lights, and front lights. The spotlights are used to pick up the characters. Sometimes I use X-ray border lights downstage overhead to pick up the costumes. These lights are not focused on the scenery at all. The other lights are worked to tone the scenery to the desired effect either to obscure it or to bring it out vividly. Be very careful of the kind of light you use on the costumes. If you have trouble with the scenery or the costumes, you can usually disguise them and make them look entirely different by some sort of trick lighting effect. I remember one time staging a production at the Winter Garden. The management set a limit of $23 for each costume. That's all they would allow. I had about 64 girls in that ballet, and it was staged by Theodore Kosloff, who is now in Los Angeles. 
He was formerly at the Empire Theatre in London, when I lived in London. He couldn't speak a word of English at that time. He had to sail for Europe before he finished staging this ballet, and he turned the ballet over to me, with a friendly request that I personally finish for him, which I gladly did. He had explained to me what he wanted in costumes, and the management finally ordered some costumes made at the above price. I just wish you could have seen what came in. When you are used to spending $150, $175, and as much as $1,500 on chorus costumes alone, you can imagine what we got for $23. When the girls put them on, I was obliged to put colored lights on them, red, blue, dark amber, and I did finally manage to get a very beautiful effect, which you can do if you find that your costumes are not up to the mark. Experiment with your colors until you get the desired effect. After we get through with our costumes and lights, we are ready to add the orchestra. That is the last thing of all. I bring the orchestra in for a reading rehearsal with the composer and musical director, and we correct whatever orchestra parts there may be wrong and smooth out the music. We always have a special orchestra rehearsal without scenery, without costumes, without the principals, without the lights, without any stagehands being around, and we perfect the musical end of the show with the orchestra and company prior to the dress rehearsal. Then we have the final full dress rehearsal. Orchestra, stagehands, costumes, lights, props, scenery, facial makeups, everything complete. We make them up for the dress rehearsal, thinking that they will remember how to make up for the opening performance, but we always find that they can't do it, and about half past four or five in the afternoon of the opening performance, we begin to make them up again. Then we are all ready for the opening performance, and we drive them through this at a terrific pace, not allowing anyone or anything to slow the performance up, which would be fatal. When you sit in front and see a show going along prettily and smoothly, you little think of the amount of brain work, footwork, and executive power and force that has been necessary behind the curtain to make the performance what it is. Does it pay? Here is a recent newspaper clipping. Quote, the Kansas City Junior League Follies, recently produced for a week's run at the Schubert Theater, Kansas City, under the personal direction of Mr. Ned Wayburn, resulted in a net profit to them of $13,844. End, End of chapter 27. Recording by Ramon Escamilla. Conway, Arkansas. R-A-M-O-N-E-S-C-A-M-I-L-L-A dot wordpress dot com.